It's Baxi's Musical Podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Baxi's Musical Podcast. You know, in 2016, Rolling Stone Magazine compiled a list of the 40 greatest punk rock records of all time. Number 13 in their list was Green Day. That's all you need to know about how much Rolling Stone understands this sort of stuff. They clearly don't know their ass from a hole in the wall, nor do they have the credibility to compile a list of records without screwing it all up, which in this case they did when they failed to mention Young, Loud, and Snotty, the 1977 debut album by the Dead Boys. Nothing. Not a thing. And yet, if you ask people that actually know what they're talking about, that album hits the top 10 and possibly even higher because Young, Loud, and Snotty is a gloriously near-perfect record of classic punk anthems. You will hardly find a record that more accurately reflects the times than this one. More importantly, you will hardly find a record from 1977 that has aged as well as this one. The Dead Boys were a band out of Cleveland, Ohio that made their way to New York City, played CBGBs at the insistence of Joey Ramone, where they proceeded to blow the place apart. This was a band that was fronted by the late Stiv Baders and included Jimmy Zero, Johnny Blitz, Jeff Magnum, and my guest today, the legendary lead guitar player of the Dead Boys, Cheetah Chrome. This was a band that was so powerful that the owner of CBGBs, Hilly Crystal, decided that of all the bands coming out of that place, it would be the Dead Boys who he wanted to manage. This was at a time when Bands like the Ramones and Talking Heads and Blondie and Patti Smith, Television and Johnny Thunders and the Heartbreakers were all playing at that club and changing music forever. And yet, Hilly saw something in the Dead Boys that was entirely different from anybody else. And he wasn't wrong. This would be a band whose music would be covered by Guns N' Roses and Pearl Jam and Soul Asylum and Sonic Youth and many others. In short, the Dead Boys were legendary and totally essential. If you know anything about punk history then you know that Cheetah Chrome is a monumental figure in American punk. He's not only the guy responsible for bringing the iconic track Sonic Reducer to the Dead Boys from his previous band, Rocket from the Tombs, an absolute rock anthem, but Cheetah is a survivor, a maverick, and arguably one of the great guitar players of his time. He's also put a lot of miles in over the last 67 years, from highs to lows to darkness to cheating death multiple times over. Cheetah Chrome has gotten through all of it much of which he talks about in his 2012 autobiography, Cheetah Chrome, A Dead Boy's Tale, which, compared to other autobiographies, really is one of the better efforts. The Dead Boys are going to start touring again this October, and they've got some dates coming to New England. This is my conversation with the great Cheetah Chrome from The Dead Boys on Baxi's Musical Podcast. Cheetah. How you doing, man? I'm doing great. How are you? Oh, I'm doing good, man. Doing good. You know, better than yesterday, man. Yesterday was <laughs> hell day. I was just all of a sudden doing all this tour shit, and I haven't actually worked doing anything really in a while. So yeah. all of a sudden, I'm every day staring at this freaking screen all day, and I'm getting headaches, and it's just like... Work gives everybody a headache. Uh, yeah, I know, but it's just like I'm just making my headaches worse just because I haven't done it in a while, you know? It's, all of a sudden, I'm squinting, and you know... <laughs> Playing and you know how it gets. <laughs> I believe me, I know exactly how it gets. I, I, I do want to talk to you about the tour in in a, a little while. 
I want to tell you, I, I just, I literally just finished reading your book, Cheetah Chrome, a, a Dead Boy's Tale. Finished it like last night. And I've been just. Oh, okay. So you. So you're not going to ask me how the band started or anything? Damn. I, no, I'm not going to ask you that because because oh, okay. oh. there's a lot of stuff in the book and it's all there. I do have questions about the book, but but no, I'm not going to ask. Cool. I'm not going to ask you how it started. But there are a couple of things that I did want to ask you about about the book. And the first one was: Have you ever been able to take advantage of your holiday and reward points? You know, for the discounts. Uh, was there always no, just too much I damage to cash them in? Really, I usually use either Hilton or like uh, Comfort Inns or something like that, you know. And, 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 uh, and yeah, I've used those a ton of times. Based, Holiday Inns, not my favorite chain, you know. <laughs> and, and and based upon your history, they don't go back to old receipts and say, "Yeah, okay, but look at the damage this guy caused." No, no, they they Holiday Inn has changed hands <laughs> several times since then. The, the story about you guys flushing howls down the toilet is it made me laugh out loud and i can only imagine what a manager would say if all of a sudden you're calling housekeeping for additional towels oh we, we, we kept doing it i mean it was like you know we were, we were amazed by how many you could get down there <laughs> you know you know yeah first we were like going to steal from the maids <laughs> the maids so <laughs> And then we were calling downstairs for them. But then talking to Hilly Crystal afterwards and trying to you know, to go through the expenses and under and, oh, yeah. and that had that sounded so damn funny. Oh, his was. reaction. I mean, you know, we were just like they just came up and researched somehow. <laughs> well, we were like research. You guys have to research. <laughs> I'm just sitting there trying not to because I know what's coming. I'm just sitting there trying not to fucking break up already. You know. <laughs> Well, I mean, it is good science. I have to say, it it, it does have that scientific it, method to it. That's exactly. You, you got to know. You know, you need to know. If I've already show, done like three towels down a toilet, is it safe to take a shit? <laughs> you know, I mean, it's you know, you know, yeah, exactly. It was a scientific research. <laughs> I mean, that's all it was. Yeah, I was I was really excited to talk to you tonight because uh, you know, obviously we have a, a mutual friend in uh, in Bobby Bremant who you know, I've known I mean I've known Bobby for for thirty five years and the dude is to- a total piece of work. So I mean, I, oh I, yeah, yeah. I, I, how did you, how did you get to to meet him? Uh, with Steve, we were going to like in eighty seven. We were going to uh, do rehearsals in Youngstown, Ohio. Him and Steve had become um, friends somehow. I don't know how because I mean how Steve can put up with the guy that. <laughs> But, you know, then uh, next day he was, like, with us for about three or four days and taking pictures and everything. And, I mean, the guy was just such a fucking blast that we've stayed in touch over the years. You know, plus he's one of the few people that I knew that seriously had Steve's back at a time when he needed to watch, yeah. you know? Yeah. And I've always appreciated that about Bobby. And, you know, so we have in common, basically. But we've gotten along quite well, you know, since Steve left us little coil. You know, we both think about him. You know, we call each other on his birthday and call each other on the anniversary. And, you know, I knew Bobby back when I, I first started doing radio. And uh, my first morning show partner and I, Bobby would hang out with us. And, you know, we, yeah. would, we would do our show and, and Bobby would would uh, would hang. But one of the things that, that one of the stories I always remembered about Bobby, and it was about, you know, the day that Steve died. You know, he finds this yeah. out and he calls us up and it's you know really early in the morning. And you know, he, I mean, the two of them are very, very close. And he was you know, really, really upset. And I know your relationship with Steve was was 
you know, very much the same, you know, very close, yeah. powerful, and, and the connection that you guys built was almost immediate. When people, yeah. when, when people ask you about Stiv, what do you think is important for people to know about the guy? You know, he's been, he's been gone for a long, long time, and people may just see, like, YouTube videos or listen to the music, but as a guy who, he was such an important part of your life, what do you think people should know? Oh, just what a smart, funny guy he was, and, uh, you know, what a talented performer he was, you know? I mean, it, you know, that was Steve. I mean, that embodied Steve, you know, and how much he cared about his friends, you know? I mean, it was, um, you know, Steve was really a gentleman. I mean, he could be as bad, you know, I mean, I was always the one that was like the fucking lout of the band, you know? I was kind of the Sid Vicious guy, you know? I wasn't, uh, I mean, I was like, how a lot, you know, cooler than Sid Vicious back then, because, I mean, I was, you know, I grew up in the projects, and it was, you know, I was a tough kid from Cleveland, and he's a tough kid from London, and he just... You know, it was clueless, you know. I mean, the guy was a fucking, you know, poor kid never had a chance, you know. Right. I always felt bad about that. But me and Steve always liked Sid because, you know, he just basically, if he would have just gone to school a little bit more, he would have been fine, you know. But, you know, he was, you know, given his upbringing and bringing it all at him. He was a drunky mom. I could see where it all turned into for him, but... Uh, you know, but still cared about people like that, and he didn't buy into the hype, and he gave anybody a second chance, and just you know, still was like my brother. He's closest thing to a brother I ever had in my life, and um, you know, I just miss that part of him. I think people need to know about that. You know, you know, I mean, you do have, you know, just you apart from from Stiv. I mean, you have created this you know rich musical legacy all on your own, uh, you know, through your entire career. And I mean, that has to be kind of a like a an odd paradox and you know on one hand it's got to be an incredible source of pride but has to be daunting at the same time because it hasn't always been easy to be cheetah chrome tell me how you know yeah i mean just by you know reading the book at many points in the in this in the book i'm going how did he live to finish this book because i mean there, there was a there was a lot of uh you know detours along the way and some of them were, were great and some of them were Pretty freaking scary. Well, the cool thing, the cool thing was that I always had the sense to, when um, you came down, when, when something like that, a detour came along, I always found that if I concentrated on my music, I somehow always got back to the same place, you know? Right. It was like when I, it's when I got frustrated with music and then when I got frustrated with the business and, you know, my natural, you know, and I'm not going to say I'm a quitter. I'm just going to say that I really get bored with that shit. And <laughs> it just seems like it's a lot more, what it starts to seem like it's a lot more trouble than it's worth. I don't care what kind, what your line of work is, you should get out of it, you know? But when you say that uh, your music has you know, been the thing that kind of pulls you out, it's, it's interesting. Yeah, that's always been my higher power, you know? Yeah. It's interesting how in, the, how in the book you also reach back a lot to the relationship you had with your mom and, and how that yeah. helped you. Musically, I mean, she was, I mean, a single mom and, and really wanted to be incredibly supportive of, oh, of music. You know, I mean, she really sacrificed to buy me a guitar one time, you know? <laughs> I mean, it was, you know, it was, you know, very tough on her at times, but, you know, she did it because she knew I needed it. She knew that I was good at it, you know? And she just wasn't going to take that away from me because she knew I didn't give a fuck about anything else, you know? <laughs> and to get her to... Get your mom to, you know, agree with you on that is kind of kind of weird at first. But, you know, we started to see results as soon as I was out of high school. So, 
you know, it wasn't like I was, I went straight out of high school and didn't play guitar anymore and went and got some great job in the factory and all that shit. I was working all day and I was going to leave work and going home and having dinner, grabbing my guitar and going out to rehearse at 11 and going back and doing that like six nights a week, you know? <laughs> and so, I mean, the work ethic was there. It was just, you know, depending on what the work was. You know, the work ethic's not what it used to be. <laughs> but, uh, you know, but yeah, my, my mom was, you know, she was really a saint. You know, the perfect, perfect Irish mom. I, I would definitely, if I had to pick somebody, it would have been her, you know? Yeah. You know, I, I remember 1977, I was young, but I mean, I remember it. And I also remember it, it, as the 80s progressed, like the worst thing that could happen to your kid was for them to become a punk rocker. And you, here's your mom putting that all aside and say, hey, you know what? My son, my son needs this more than criticizing his haircut or what he's wearing or the music he's listening to. Dealt with all that shit back in 1974 before punk rock came along. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it was like, you know, I, mean, I literally, you know, I, I, I quit high school in 
it doesn't sound the same way as, as Young, Loud, and Snotty at all. What do you call it? Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, those songs were thunderous live. They were fucking great, and it just got neutered on that record, you know? You know, I didn't like it. I mean, I didn't know what the fuck Felix... How the hell are you defended up there? I mean, just because you knew Seymour somehow was trying to get his foot in the door on punk rock. And we were all kind of like, this guy's an old fucking hippie for this fucking come together, for Christ's sake, you know? It just seemed like Felix Papillardi had... You had no clue what to do with you. Kind of, in a way, it's kind of like you know, Nick Mason didn't really know what to do with the Damned in their second record either. No, it's, he didn't. It shows, you know. Yeah, it does. And, and you know, thankfully, the, the Damned were able to kind of pick up the pieces. But in 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 this case, well, with you guys, they were in the same shoes. Because I'll tell you, fucking, they're fucking that tour through the Dead Boys and uh, between the release of our first album, and then we went on tour. And they, their second album was just coming out. And they sounded fucking great. The song sounded great on stage. Yep. It was, uh, I mean, they didn't have Brian anymore. They had this guy, Lou. Lou Edmonds, yeah. Yeah, and, um, you know, it was, uh, to me, it wasn't the same. I mean, you know, I, I love Brian. Brian's one of my best friends in the band. And it was, you know, it was a new direction for sure. Not as much as Machine Gun Etiquette. It was just really good to see them and seeing them fucking sound so good. That- Brian was on that fucking show. They had Brian and Lou, and then they had fucking Captain. It was two guitars. So, in in the case of of your second album, you guys are you you're fighting with Sire, you're fighting with Felix, and then all of a sudden you decide, fuck this, I gotta, I you know, this is not what I I want to do, and you and you and you walk away, and for a good period. Well, of I was cold, cold. We were. I, I was there. I was a hundred percent there to do the fuck. Everything, but and I was ready for. I was looking forward to the third record because I just wanted to fucking forget about the second one and do the third one as quick as possible. Because since then, while Johnny was stabbed, I'd written like five or six more good songs, you know, right? Which are now have all ended up as solo songs over the years. But you know, we're going to add a lot of those songs to the set this uh, next tour because those songs should have been Dead Boy songs anyway, you know. And with Jake, I have that opportunity to kind of capture that again, you know? You know, I wish I still had Blitz, but me and Blitz can't ever play together again. It's just too too much going on. Really? Yeah, it's, it's fucking done, man. Yeah, that's too bad. But, it, you know, I hear that a lot between guys who have known each other for a, a real long time. There's a long history. They either you know, can bury the hatchet or they don't. A lot worse if any of them had done shit since. But not one of them has done shit to count it since the fucking dead boys broke up. You know what I mean? And the only person that's bothered to keep the fucking name alive for fucking 40 years but me. And, you know, I mean, I'm glad to do it, you know, but at the same time, it's like, I don't want to, you know, I don't hear shit from these guys about it. Well, you know, Jeff Mangan, bitch, I should be playing bass. No, you're a fucking total asshole to deal with the whole time I play with you. <laughs> you shouldn't be in this band because it'll just fuck it up, too. I should have felt that way about Blitz, but I gave Blitz a fucking better chance, you know? So now when you put uh, the band back together and you're going to go on the, the road in October, who is playing with the band now? Well, right now, as far as I know, um, we've got Chris Awanis, who is my drummer in my solo band. Before Johnny Blitz, we got Johnny Blitz back. And, um, you know, it was never my idea to get Johnny Blitz back, but I got talked into it. And... As soon as Blitz was gone, I was like, okay, good. I can get Chris back now, you know, because this guy's like somebody I get along with great. We you know, we play, he's a better fucking, more reliable drummer than Blitz. It's just a whole lot of different shit going on. You know, I don't mean to slam at Blitz or anything like that. I mean, 
you know, playing drums a lot part than playing guitar. He does have, you know, rotator cuff problems and shit. He never practices, but it's, you know, he got there and he delivered a lot of the time. And then it got towards after we'd gone through a couple of tours, he just wasn't delivering. He was, you know, screwed up. Ain't it funny, for Christ's sake? He's been playing for how many years? Yeah. And then you realize he's just doing it to piss you off. Yeah. You know, it's like been playing good game playing bullshit. And it's, you know, it's like, you know, neither one of us needs this man. Can't you just fucking sit back, take a paycheck and fucking like, you know, everybody else do it and, and quit playing the fucking Machiavellian games. And, you know, I can, I can see that if you're still kind of playing those games when you're, you know, you're in your twenties and you don't know better, but you know, yeah, at, no, he's younger than me. So, you know. I mean, I'm 67. We're not too old for that shit. Yeah, that's that's what I would think. Just to kind of change gears here a little bit, I uh, I also getting ready for the the interview. I watched the CBGB's movie uh, again for the uh, I think a second okay. second or third time. The way you guys are portrayed in that movie is actually pretty interesting. I don't know how accurate it was. I mean, I know you had uh, you know, a, a part in no, in no. that film, but there was I mean there was kind of like a comic relief thing with the uh, with the dead boys. How accurate do you think they portrayed you guys? Um, I thought that Rupert did a real good job on me. I thought the kid that played Stiv um, did really good, except that he never wore, he didn't wear his sunglasses. Stiv was never caught without his sunglasses. Uh, the other guys, you know, there was, you know, they looked, they looked okay. They played their parts all right, you know? Yeah, and like, and like, and like I said, Ron Weasley played you in the movie. I mean, that's that's the second greatest role of that kid's life. <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> you know, but it's funny because I've you know, gotten to hang out with him a few times since, and he's a great kid. And he's he's gone all rock and roll since he made that movie. Right. So. <laughs> so with CBGBs, you, you, you talked a lot about Hilly, you know, owning the club yeah. and, and and managing you guys, and in uh, the role he played in, in, in getting you help, uh, you know, later on. Obviously, he saw something in you guys that he wasn't seeing in a lot of the other bands that were coming in out of that club. What was it that he saw in you guys that was that was special to him? Just that he knew the real thing when he saw it. Yeah, you know? I, I think I think that's what it is. I think there was an authenticity to you guys that you may not have had in in some of the other bands that were there. I mean, Talking Heads are a great band. Blondie's a great band. But I mean, you guys instilled a little bit of fear in people and, and that was probably really attractive to him. Yeah, because I mean he was used to all these New York kids that were you know, they were tough kids and stuff, but they were, you know, they grew up in New York. They didn't, you know, they, most of them were kids from the suburbs, you know. Uh they were all from Queens or something, you know, which I mean no matter what you say about Queens, being part of New York City suburb, you know. And, <laughs> right. At least half of it is, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, and like there's a lot of bands in New York that were, you know, they all, you know, looked very tough standing up against the wall with their leather jackets on, you know. We were, I think you could tell it was between us and them because we were actually like street fighting kids from bad neighborhoods in Cleveland, you know. <laughs> Which are a lot scarier than bad neighborhoods in New York, believe it or not, because it's, it's, it's quieter. So there's more chance for trouble to go down. You know, he's not fucking people within 30 feet of your whole life. It's those damn great lakes. They have a, they have a fuck up uh, effect on people. Yeah. Yeah. We were, you know, we were, you know, I grew up like in one of the worst neighborhoods in Cleveland, so did Blitz. And it was, you know, it was, you know, they're very much Dodge City. And, you know, you were there, you walked down the street alone in Cleveland, you were fucking alone. It wasn't like you got fucking, you know, bystanders all over the fucking place like New York, you right, know? Right, Nobody's going to call the cops in a hurry. You get fucking, you know, 
mugged or something, you know? I've been through Cleveland a, a couple of times over the, over the years, and I, I can I can understand that at night looking for a hotel room or whatever, you know, driving you know, through I ninety to get to wherever the hell I was trying to go to, and uh, yeah, no, I totally I totally get there's some parts of the state of Ohio that are best left un- oh, yeah, well, I'm just undiscovered. I'm walking from you know walking from the fucking bus stop back down to the project and going to my girlfriend's house. You know, you never know who was fucking going to be around. And, you know, there was altercations all the time back when I was growing up. You know, I mean, you got kids from fucking having grudge from a fucking junior high or jump you. You know, I mean, you, don't know, <laughs> you know, you never know what's going to happen in Cleveland. You know, it's not the you know it's not the fucking strongest. Um, that it for sure wasn't like the strongest mentality town. It was like all basically all people worked in the steel mills and fucking uh, Ford plants and shit. Everybody's very blue collar, you know what I mean. So it was uh, including myself. I mean, I was a total fucking walkhead back then. I mean, I didn't learn really squat until I got to be close to thirty before I really started to understand and start to you know actually. You know, go on, you know, start reading books. And, you know, I've always read books and stuff. I mean, I was never a, a total dummy, but I went to school all the time. I just never fucking paid attention and, you know, never did my homework or anything, you know? But clearly not, but clearly not stupid. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, definitely not. It's pretty much, I, I put myself about anybody who's got like a two or three years in college easily, you know? <laughs> That's all shit that I've learned on my own since, you know? It's not. Anything ever anybody ever taught me. When you talk about Cleveland, you know, one of the things that, that I just, I, I find kind of fascinating. People don't think of, of Cleveland as being this hotbed of, of music, but I mean, there were great bands in and out of Ohio. I mean, yeah, uh, no question about it, but Rocket from the Tomb, there's, there's, there's a mythologized feeling about this band that may or may not be accurate. The, the, the fact that you're in a band with, with David Thomas who would go on to, to form Perubu. Uh, Crocus Behemoth was his name at the time, which I think is still yeah. the, the third best uh, stage name next to Cheetah Chrome and Rat Scabies. But <laughs> nevertheless, there is a mythology about this band because so many songs in that band wound up following Pirubu and uh, and also the Dead Boys. Tell me about about that experience back then. Obviously, this is before you go to New York and you guys you know reform oh, yeah. many years later. Yeah, I mean, it really is. I mean, um, I mean, I I met those guys in November. I left high school. I got myself a day job, and was just basically sitting around playing guitar, writing songs, and trying to find somebody to play with. And the only way it was to really connect with musicians was to go out to bars or to um, put an end the paper or look at the ads of paper and call somebody. You know, because right. I mean, I was only deaf when I was still only seventeen. You know, I mean, I turned eighteen and rocked my tunes. Well, we were doing our, we did the album that turned into the Day the Earth Met, you know, the recording for the radio. Yeah. Um, I turned 18 in the studio that night, <laughs> in our rehearsal studio, you know? And so, I mean, I was, I was a kid, you know? It was, and um, I really couldn't even go, I mean, I, got, I used to manage to get in, but I didn't have a fucking ID until I was already in the band, you know? Uh, it was pretty crazy, and it was... um. You know, looking back on it, yeah, I mean, but back then, Cleveland was so, so much, oh, still a steel mill town, a very polluted town. Mm-hmm. Um, it was still, you know, the population was going down by like 
60% a year or something like that. I mean, the river caught on fire. <laughs> like, not once, but a couple times. The the Browns were shitty. The the Indians were shitty. The <laughs> Indians sucked. There was nothing really cool going on. And every bar, bar you went to was all cover bands, you know, playing like fucking Doobie Brothers and whatever shit was going on around 1973, 1974, you know? Right. And they weren't playing any glitter because that wasn't considered cool. So, I mean, you play a T-Rex on these guys, and they go, oh, we can't play that in the Cleveland Club. Me and Blitz had already gone to CT Rex fucking fellow theater and totally opened the crowd, you know? It was like, we were like, oh, all these people who were fucking full in that theater, you know, look like a big crowd for Cleveland and me, you know? So why wouldn't, why would you not accept this music in the club? And it was just because of, you know, the owners didn't want to deal with it. They were all, you know, rock and roll. Irish didn't get into rock and roll. They didn't get into bars, really, except their own, you know? Bars are their headquarters. They didn't use them as businesses, you know? But you guys came up at such a young age with some incredible songs, you know, Sonic Reducer and Ain't It Fun and, you know, Final Solution. I mean, these are all such great freaking songs at a young age. It seems weird that, you know, the that the audiences and the clubs weren't real embracing of this because those songs want to become classics like a handful of years later once especially when you guys as the dead boys want up leaving Cleveland and going to, and going to New York, all of a sudden these are like the, the greatest songs people have ever heard. Well, it was like my girlfriend told me one time at the time, my girlfriend back then told me one time, cause it's not that they don't like you. It's just, they don't know what to fucking think of you. <laughs> cause you guys are like these guys that have been around. They've seen in these clubs and all of a sudden get up one night on stage and fucking take everybody's heads off. And they, nobody had any re, any clue that you guys were that good or that talented. Nobody had any clue that you guys, you know, were that different, you know? Was, right. You know? Well, David's voice is kind of like a, an acquired thing. You either really like it or you don't know what he's, what he's trying to do with it. And it's like, yeah, yeah. I mean, if you're a fan of, if you know Pierre Ubu's music, you, you know exactly what I'm talking about. I got it back before he perfected it. And I'll tell you something. It was... First time I heard him sing, my first reaction was, well, God damn, it's a lot higher than I expected. <laughs> and then my second was like, but that's pretty, pretty fucking good. Yeah, absolutely. And he definitely got the emotion across, you know what I mean? Like, and to me, after working with him, you know, he'd been his friend for all these years, to me, he's like, his voice is like an instrument. It's like fucking Robert Plants or Elvis's or something. It's a special thing. That only he's got, you know, really, to me, means a lot to when I hear it, you know? Yeah. yeah. And it, I mean, not only wakes up old memories, but it also, every time I listen to something by Perubu, you know, because I was never that big of a fan in the old days. We still had a lot of grudge shit going on and all that, and I just kind of, okay, we'd call them Pure Elbow, and we'd, you know, put their record in the fucking stack, but we never played it, you know? Right. And then over the years, I started, you know, listening to it. It was like, man, this is actually, you know, a lot less arty than I thought it was, you know? Still amazing, though. Just, it, just, just the idea that that band even existed to me is just like, holy shit, I wish I, I, wish I was old enough to have seen it you know, back back then, because to me, it just it seems like such an interesting thing to have seen. Well, Rock of the Tooth was definitely a fucking, you know, a fucking shit show. Yeah, I mean, we were great, you know? I mean, we... Cleveland at the time, we were, we were, you know, we, we deserved a status, I think, you know, <laughs> you 
If we went out there to knock them over the head, we did, you know? Yeah, yeah. You know, I've often wondered in the years since what would have had Rock and the Tunes gone to New York instead of Dead Boys. Mm. Um, just because it never occurred to us. We went to Detroit to fucking meet Lester Bangs and all those guys once, I guess. Right. You know? I really remember being there. If I, I don't even know if I was there, but I know those guys. I, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if they carried me in the van the whole trip and I didn't wake up either. Yeah. You know, it's an so. I mean, it's an interesting question. You know what? You know what would have happened? But you know, the fact is, it it, it didn't, and it was the dead boys. It didn't that, happen. Yeah, and I mean, I'm you know, I'm not I'm not complaining about the way things did work out, but it's often just just made me wonder because I mean, we were so frustrated over the fucking lack of attention or anything we were getting and. We would have been perfect for New York, you know. What I mean, rockets yeah. and it's like, that is so. I, I, I don't see we would have come home fucking with our tails between our legs like we did every night in Cleveland, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Especially in New York, where you know, like the 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 artsy side of of that scene was you know pretty well embraced. You know, like again, like the, the Talking Heads had kind of a like an artsy feel about it. Even television had a like an artsy side, uh, you know, component to it. But you know, yeah, yeah. So maybe maybe Rockets and Platoon would have been like a, like the perfect band to go about to to get out there. Yeah, and, you know, I just always wanted that. But I mean, it doesn't matter now. Just you know, something to think about when I'm old and bored. You know, right. as far as people, you know, when Rockets was playing, we actually and Frankenstein, we were at, you know playing with um, different bands. Like we got some. You know, you know, we were hanging out with different bands a lot, like just because of the scene we were in. Like we were because of Rock and Tunes. Rock and Tunes was actually considered a very cool band in Cleveland at the time, except that nobody came to our shows, and people kind of stayed twenty feet away from us just because we scared. <laughs> them, you know, worse than the dead. I think worse than the dead boys did. Really? Because, you know, you you didn't know who was. You know, even the normal looking guys were weird in that band. You know. At least the dead boys that weren't any normal looking guys, you know. So we're I mean, we got to meet, you know, we got to hang out with the Runaways and the Dolls and the Alex Harvey Band, the Tubes, Bebop Deluxe, all these bands that would come through Cleveland. Um, you know, the Heartbreakers, Television. We played with Television, and um, so we knew, like, you know, I knew Sylvain, I knew Johnny, I knew fucking Doc Johansson when I moved up there. I knew all the guys from the Dolls. Um, all the guys in television. And when I got up there, um, you know, I kind of met the rest of the bands. I finally got to see a lot of the bands. We always became, oh, I met Bowie, met Blondie back then, you know, right. back in Cleveland. They warmed up for Bowie on the, the Idiot Tour. But, you know, they brought Greggy on the Idiot Tour. And we had met them when we first went up to New York in um, 76, in August. They were a bunch of Blondies were our first show. And they were all just cool people. And that was, that was just nice. Like, Joey Ramon, when he did that for us, he brought up all these people. Like, he had a guest list for us. And it was, like, all Danny Fields, Roberta Bailey, John Holmston, Legs McNeil, Blondies, Ramones, Heartbreakers, guys, you know? So, I mean, everybody cool was, was there to see us. And that was, like, amazing for us because it was, like, you know, you know, getting to walk in and actually have like a built-in crowd, you know, we never expected that. You know, we had like 25, 30 people there at first game, and it was all to the legs and, and Joey, which we still all them awful, you know? It sounds like, and I, you know, I, I've never met, uh, I'd never met Joey. I never had a chance to interview him, but, uh, but. Oh, it, I should have. Yeah, it, it, everything I hear about that guy is he was the absolute nicest guy 
and he was just a, like a kind, sweethearted guy. And, and for all the, but he was also one of the guys too. You know, he you know he didn't put up with anybody busting his balls or nothing either. He wasn't like, you know, you, you can make him seem, seem like a wuss that way, and he wasn't. He was, you know, you know, me and him, you know, we get in arguments, swing at each other. I mean, Charlie was fucking one of the guys. He was a good man. He was a friend. You know, it was all friendly. We fun, you know. There's a whole bunch of you know stuff in the book that. Uh, that sticks out to me. And, uh, and I, and I, and I thought about this even before I even picked up the book is that, you know, you have in a very real way, you know, have outlasted a lot of your contemporaries, whether it's, you know, Stiv or, or Thunders or Joey or, you know, Hilly Crystal or, you know, any, any of the others that weren't able to survive that, that period of time. You, you were very open in the book about that. I mean, you're a survivor in a world where not everybody gets a chance to, to survive. I know that that none of that is lost on on a guy like you, and you understand it and, and ha- have a good deal of gratitude. But 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 tell me a little bit about that being in a in a in a situation where so many people that you started off with weren't able to make it out. You gotta think about that. That's a pretty good game. Cool. I like that one. Um, you know, it was first death that really hit me. That hard with Peter that he died right after we got started, yeah. you know. And um, he was only twenty three when he died. He died of liver failure. Mm. So think about what that guy had to do. Died of liver failure at twenty three. You know, <laughs> he makes you look like a lightweight. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, but back then I was. Right there with him, you know. It was, uh, you know, I mean, I've stopped for periods, but I mean, I haven't ever stopped completely forever, you know. Right. I still have beers. I still smoke pot. I still take painkillers when I need them, you know. But it's, um, but I, I had to quit for years before I was able to even keep it down to that, you know. And so, you know, but the first case of survivor skills I really got was stiff. I mean, because I was. I was living in New York, in the East Side, and all that, all through the seventies and you know the eighties. Going up, you know, I was staying in my mom's house, in Connecticut, and I had a bunch of junkie buddies up there too. You know, they were all over the place in New England, <laughs> and uh, you know, I was the only only fucking junkies that knew how to hop in a small town in Connecticut. You know. What I mean? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now they're in every town in Connecticut. Trust me, they've been. They've been there all along. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure that's true. Get, you know, getting back to my original answer to your question, I guess it's going to take me a minute to answer because I'm still thinking about it. <laughs> um, it um, you know, still was the first case of real survivor skill that I ever felt because I mean, he had a lot going for him. He was in the Lords. They were touring all over the place. You know, I was shooting dope in New York and basically trying to kill myself and then somehow... We were supposed to get back together like yeah. that month, and then he died. And so all of a sudden, well, that's out the window, and this is out, you know, out the window. And like, you know, it just took me a month to realize, holy shit, my best friend is gone, you know. And a bit of that came pretty much once a year or twice a year after that, where either somebody in the business I knew died, or somebody, a friend of mine, who was a running buddy, died, you know. And it was, uh, death was real commonplace on the Lower East Side back then. It wasn't, you know, I had one friend of mine, Billy Balls, got shot by cops. I mean, it was, 
wasn't just dope. You know, it was just you know living in a city, and you know, I ended up with good friends that were really normal people. And ended up going to jail for fucking crimes just mm-hmm. to get dope. You know, yeah. And one guy to fucking tied a guy to a chair, stole five pounds of dope from him, beat him up, and left him there. And ended up going being in Sing Sing for five years. I did my roommate when he got out, you know? <laughs> like, um, it was just a weird place. I mean, New York is so cramped, and you got your friends, and you're all from such different circumstances. And you've all, none of you's got a, you know, a, a past that's not 80, you know? Yeah. I mean, we're all hanging out with strippers and drug dealers and all that all the time. And I guess, you know, pretty much it was just, Attrition, just you know, the way things go in life. If you're not, if you're stupid instead of smart, but but Johnny and Jerry, I mean, those two are really unexpected to me. I didn't even cry after Steve died. I never cried. I didn't cry after Johnny died. I cried when Jerry died because I'd been there to see him, and it was um, he was in a hospital and he had you know meningitis and all this all this stuff going on with him, and he just was. Couldn't really talk to me, you know. Yeah, he was so he was he was high, and it was like it was um very upsetting. And I just had to say, like, I can't I can't see you like this again, man. I love you, brother, but I can't come here and see you if you're not getting better. I can't do it, you know. I, 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 I you guys have all so far died out of my sight. I can't watch somebody go out of my sight, you know, in my sight, you know, or I'm just gonna fucking kill myself and. Gave him a hug and fucking, you know, I had to leave. I got to spend a fucking, you know, a few cool. I mean, we couldn't say a word of each other. He's in a fucking oxygen breather and, you know, tubes down his throat. But we were taught communicating by squeezing hands and shit, you know? Right. But he looked terrified. It was just, it wasn't my best memory of rock and roll. No, I found out, you know, I was there on, I was out of my mom's house in Connecticut and it came on the news that one of rock and roll's greatest drummers died. This was about a, Months later, and I was just like, "Holy shit!" Yeah. And I said, "Jerry Dillon from the New York Dolls," and I was just like, "Oh shit!" And I said, "Mom, I'm going to go in the room and sit for a bit." And went in there, I put on the fucking radio, and first song came on was "Tears in Heaven," and I just fucking broke down and cried for about two hours. Probably overall, three of them, you know. Yeah, I mean that's that's a remarkable answer. You know, to to admit all of, of of that and to admit how these kind of the things accumulate when it comes to you know guilt and loss and and uh, and uh, and sorrow. You know, you, you don't. Everyone grieves in in different ways in different ways, and and it hits you when you least expect it. I was a tower of strength when my mom died, but you know, as soon as funeral was over, I was up at three in the morning with a bottle of fucking Sailor Jerry's, crying. You know, yeah. Yeah. In my basement, holding their ashes. You know, it was, um, you get through it however you get through it. I mean, I'm, there's no sensible way to get through it except for let time go by. But sometimes that don't come, but at the moment, that don't come quick enough. And that's why you seek whiskey, you know, and or heroin or something, you know? Yeah. And look, I didn't turn to that for mom until about six months later, but it, it ended up happening that way, you know? Yeah. But then you know you you did have your son and you and you did you you, yeah. raised, you raised a good kid and and you know, it's that, like that old blood sweat and tears uh, you, you know song you know you know one dies you know one goes on to carry on 
Yeah. I, you know, I know for me as, as a dad, you know, you know, I, you know, everyone says, you know, before the baby's born, on, it's, it's going to change your life. You know, to me, it like, to me, oh, that's, no. that's the moment where your life actually begins when suddenly you become yeah. responsible for oh, a child. How old are you, man? Almost 56. Okay. How, how old are you? Uh, 22, 20 and, uh, 18. Yeah. I got a son. You got a son or a daughter, 18? Three daughters. Three daughters. Okay. Well, we have my kid's just 17 right now. He's just going to be, but he's like he's 19 already. Or he's like he's 19 or 20 already. You know? <laughs> it's true. And his kid's fucking quick. You know, he's, he learned from the best before he went to school. You know, <laughs> <laughs> does he have any appreciation for the dead boys or, or your career or, or even the, the legacy that you've, you've built? Does he have any? Cause you know, my kids don't give a damn. About he's got, he's got three. Three of my posters on my wall, and he plays on like a cut. Oh, that's awesome. You know? Um, yeah, I mean, he's, it's funny because, I mean, down here, you know, since I moved to Nashville in 96, uh, I've become part of the community here. So, like, everybody knows I'm here. Everybody knows who I am. Uh, you know, I get favorable press and everything, even because, you know, I've actually, you know, gone in and produced good records and shit. And, um, hanging out, I, I hang out with the A-list guys, the, the studio guys, you know, because they're fucking nice guys and they're smart, you know. And anybody, anybody thinks Tennessee's full of dumb hillbillies that never fucking <laughs> sat around with a bunch of musicians in Nashville. So the uh, the Dead Boys are actually coming through uh, Massachusetts, and uh, which is awesome. Uh, October twenty. 20- oh, no, we got got canceled. We're doing, we're doing really, it got canceled. Really. That place of vault closed down, man. Oh my god, that's too bad. So, uh, okay. Paul River fucking toilet anyway, man. <laughs> you know, you'll get no, you'll get no argument from me, and and New Bedford's not. I the... wasn't really looking forward to that. <laughs> I, I don't want my pool table smelling a pussy, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, good. I'm glad I didn't buy tickets yet. That would have been. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm yeah, yeah. Save myself a few bucks. Yeah, you want to buy a ticket? Don't worry about. It. Just call me. You want? You don't need a ticket. I'll tell you what. I'll use that money. I'll buy a bunch of towels and flush them down a the toilet in a hotel. Your hotel, right? <laughs> any any hotel. I'll, I I want to no, I want to yeah. continue your research. <laughs> yeah, well, you can't. Oh, this is the room next to mine. I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Cheetah, it's it's been a real pleasure to talk to you, and and I and I appreciate the the, the time you took tonight. So thank you so much. It's it's been a real pleasure. Well, anytime, man. If you need anything more, just give me a buzz, man. I appreciate it. She had a great, uh, great to talk to you. And I'm sorry we'll miss you in, uh, in New Bedford. I guess uh, next time around. Well, you can't make it to Providence. How far is that? Well, uh, where where are you playing in Providence? I think a better place, actually. If we had more time, we could talk about your Providence stories because there's plenty of those too. Alchemy, you know. Alchemy, yeah, I knew where that is. Yeah, okay. Yeah, we're playing Alchemy. That's uh, the 23rd. It's the night after New York. Perfect. Yeah. All right. Well, very good. Hopefully, we can uh, see you out there. Well, just give me a text, you know, close to the show, and I'll make sure you're on the list. Wonderful. Cheetah, great to talk to you. Have a great night. You too, man. All right. Thanks for calling. You bet. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. The name of Cheetah Chrome's book is called Cheetah Chrome, A Dead Boy's Tale. It really is very, very good. Keep your eyes open for the Dead Boys touring this fall. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, share it, rate it, subscribe to it. Tell all your friends about it. You can email me at BaxAtRock102.com. I'd love to know what you think. And thanks again for listening to Baxi's Musical Podcast.